Welcome to Map the Maze. I wanted to share the ideas and thoughts in the podcast that you're about to listen to with a wider audience. But please know that nothing in this podcast is intended to be legal, financial, or mental health advice. It is really important that you seek independent, professional advice to help you with your situation and your circumstances. Knowledge is power. So let's get to it. Hi, and welcome back to Map the Maze. So today I wanted to talk about child-inclusive mediation as a process. But I guess the first thing to note is that making arrangements for your children is hard work. I'm certainly not going to minimize how difficult it can be to put arrangements in place with your co-parent. Some people ask me if their children can participate in the mediation to help make arrangements. Sometimes this is because the children are maybe older or maybe they've already verbalized what they want to happen uh, in terms of arrangements. Or maybe it's because people feel that the child should have the ability to influence the arrangements that are being made. The simple answer is no. Um, as a general rule, you would not want to put a child into the mediation process. It is difficult enough for adults to make decisions. I certainly wouldn't think it was ethical to ask a child to make decisions. But there is a way to achieve this. There is a way to hear the voice of children in the absence of a child through a process we call child-inclusive mediation. So child-inclusive mediation is a way for parents to hear their children's experiences and voice and even sometimes specific words uh, in the mediation process. So how does that happen? The first step is that the family mediator will work with a child consultant in parallel. So the child consultant is somebody who is a mental health professional. They could be a counsellor. They could be a psychologist. They have trained specifically to work in mediation, how to extract feedback, understand feedback through a developmental lens, and then deliver feedback into a mediation process. The child consultant and the mediator will meet with parents to assess if CIM, child inclusive mediation, is an appropriate process for your family. Will you be able to hear messages from your children? What if the information that the feedback that the child consultant brings isn't what you want to hear? Are you able to listen to negative messages or messages you don't like without punishing a child or without criticizing a child? So those are the things that we want to understand before deciding that child-inclusive mediation, CIM, is appropriate. If the child consultant and the mediator determine that CIM is appropriate for your family, then the next step is for a child consultant to meet with your children. This is usually an hour and a half, maybe two hours. There may be one or two sessions. Essentially, the child consultant will want to meet with all of the children. So if there's a sibling group, all of the siblings together, and also each child separately. So I guess what 
is helpful to know is this is not therapy. There are no ongoing sessions. Beyond the one or two sessions that a child consultant has to develop feedback, there would be no further contact. During the session, the child consultant will use developmentally appropriate tools to communicate with children and to allow them to express their thoughts and concerns. So for a small child, this could be what we call bear cards. So these are a pack of cards with cartoon bears. I have to say the bears are very cute, um, but they are expressing different emotions. Uh, so some of the bears are being happy, some of them are being silly, some of them are angry, and some of them are sad. So it's a way for children to express emotion without having to know the right words. So the child consultant may say something like, you know, how does it feel when this happens? Show me which bear card is the right card for this. And so children can, through their choice of bear cards, communicate quite complex messages about emotions and emotional state without having to find any of the words. Or the child consultant may say to a sibling group, why don't you draw around each of your brothers and sisters? So one case I can remember they had three children and the kids all drew around each other on a big piece of paper on the floor. And then each child was able to color in their own picture um, to express how they were feeling. So one little boy who was nine, having had his big sister draw around him, was then able to color in his picture of himself. And he drew tears going down the back of his throat because he said he was really sad about what was happening at home to his family and that it felt like he was eating his own tears all the time. So that is a tough message for parents to hear that beyond their own sadness and grief about the loss of the relationship that their kids are experiencing, sometimes extreme senses of sadness and loss. Um, the child consultant might read books with a child. One of the key things is to help normalize experience for children that it can be quite isolating for a child to not be able to talk to mum and dad about how they're feeling because they don't want to burden their parents, to not really be able to talk to their friends because the friends don't really understand what's going on. And this can be the first time that a child has had an opportunity to speak to somebody who understands the context of what's happening and can normalize their experience for them, can normalize that it's okay to be sad it's okay to be angry. It's okay to not want this to happen. Um, and also importantly, to listen. How does it feel to be that child as their parents are separating? So there's a lot of research around the challenges that children face in separation and divorce. And one of the big messages that we've had from research is that children often feel, A, that they have no voice. Nobody really asks them how they feel. Nobody tells them what is happening, that they feel powerless because they're not involved in what's going on, particularly if their case is resolved through the court process. And so that meeting with a child consultant can often be a really positive experience for children, that they will enjoy meeting with a child consultant, because usually these people are 
very child-friendly um, and a lot of fun and will often want to talk to them because this is somebody who understands what's happening for the child but can listen to the child. So as I said, the child consultant won't ask direct questions. So we would never say to a child, do you want to live with mum or dad? If you think about it, there's no way for a child to win that question. However they answer, they risk losing or disappointing or upsetting a parent. And it's too much pressure. If it's difficult for adults to make these decisions, why would we ask children to make these decisions? So the child consultant is trying to build a picture of what life is like for this child as their parents separate. What is it like to be you at the moment? So that that picture, that message can be carried back to the parents. So the child consultant does want to know things that are difficult for the child, that are challenging for the child at the moment, that are supportive, that are positive. So, you know, what are what are mum and dad doing at the moment that's helping you, that's positive for you? What could they do to be more supportive? What could be what could they do to make things less challenging? The child consultant will also ask children if they have a specific message that should be delivered to parents. This can be a little scary. Um, so I can think of some messages that have come back uh, in the talk with um, Monica. I talk about one case where the message that came back from the sibling group was, if we just imagine their name was Smith, their name isn't Smith, but let's just imagine that the children came back and said, we want mum and dad to be back on team Smith. We want to feel that mum and dad are a team looking after us again. That is a very powerful message, partly because it was in language that the children used. So the parents could recognize their children in that message. The second thing is during the conversations around children's arrangements, that's a goal that you can come back to. Okay, if we put this arrangement in place, does that bring us nearer to the goal of being Team Smith or further away? What are the types of arrangements that we can put in place that achieve that goal of the children feeling that mum and dad are back on Team Smith? Um, so really incredibly helpful, A, for the children to feel that they've been able to express themselves, but also for parents to have a, a goal. What is it that I need to try and keep in my mind's eye to support my kids through this transition? I think what's important to note is that child consultants explain to children that they're not decision makers, that the child consultant will speak to mum and dad, let them know how things are going, and work with mum and dad to help them make good decisions. But a child consultant never guarantees a specific outcome. It's really important that children don't receive false promises from child consultants, that they understand the feedback will be given, the child consultant will work really hard, and at the end of the day, mom and dad will make that decision. The reason is we don't want to, A, create false expectations for children, but also you don't want a child to feel that they've trusted a professional, particularly a mental health professional, and then have been let down by that person. So really important that that clarity is given to children. After the session, the child consultant will prepare a feedback report. So this is discussed with the mediator 
in advance of the mediation session. And together, the mediator and the child consultant will plan how can this feedback be helpful in the mediation? How can this support the parents' discussions? How um, can we use this to maybe, if required, generate an agenda which is specific to the children's issues which have been raised? The child consultant then comes to the mediation session with the parents to deliver the feedback. And generally, the child consultant will deliver feedback just about um, general relationships with each of the parents, how things are going, and then we'll talk about how is the child coping with the separation, what are things that the child is finding supportive, and what are things that the child is finding challenging. The mediator will listen as the child consultant is delivering the feedback and will use that to generate a child's agenda for parents to discuss if it's appropriate. So sometimes the feedback is really helpful, but it doesn't need to have separate agenda items. And sometimes there are specific things. So for example, a child might talk about, uh, in a way that parents maybe wouldn't consider, but might talk about their school events and talk about how a particular stressor for them is that when mom and dad come to their school events, that they won't sit next to each other, they won't talk to each other, they don't acknowledge each other. So A, that's embarrassing for the child, and B, the child is now thinking, well, who do I go sit with? How do I make this work so that I can navigate between mom and dad? So the agenda item from that might be, how can we, as co-parents, support Jenny to to relax at her school events? What can we do to make school events easier for Jenny? So then that leads into a conversation about how do the co-parents behave? What can they do to make this positive for Jenny? Um, and there are lots of different ways to answer that. It could be that they both agree they'll sit together and be polite. It might be that they agree they'll take turns in going so that they don't have to try and find a way to sit together. It might be that they decide to tell Jenny that she can sit with whoever. It doesn't matter. They give her permission to try and navigate between the parents. There's lots of different ways that we can talk about it. What is helpful is that often the child consultant will stay in the mediation so that um, we can use their expertise um, and the information they have about the specific child to fuel and inform the discussion around arrangements. So one of the key benefits of this type of feedback is that it brings specific information into the mediation from somebody who has met the children, but also that the child consultant is a developmental expert. So they can present feedback through a developmental lens. What does this message mean? What does this observation mean, given the child's age and stage of development? They can also look at, are children on track? Are they hitting the targets, the milestones? developmentally that they should be hitting where they are? Or are they under stress and therefore not able to, to meet their developmental milestones? It can be a really emotional discussion, I have to say, and I can definitely think of times when we've had to take quite a few breaks um, because some of these messages can be very difficult for parents to hear. But... I think important 
and also illuminating that even the difficult messages can be very motivating for parents to think, okay, we need to do a better job. We need to find a new way forward. We need to work together. So parents always have an opportunity to ask questions and discuss the feedback with the child consultant and the mediator. The mediator will then guide the parents to discuss the child's agenda, if there is one, or the parents may resume their discussions around the children's arrangements with the benefit now of this developmentally appropriate feedback. In my experience, it's really helpful if the child consultant stays for the parents' discussion because there are lots of questions which people don't think of at the time and they might come up later. So the child consultant can be on hand to provide input, but also they can have really helpful insights into how you might be able to support a child in terms of making arrangements. And if necessary, they can also provide professional suggestions or referrals if needed to a professional who can work with a child on an ongoing basis. The process can be really powerful. And I think that's a word that often people who have experienced child-inclusive mediation as a professional or as a party, powerful is a word that you often hear people use. So to hear from a professional person who has met your child, who's put their experience into a developmentally sensitive feedback can really help parents to make arrangements which are completely tailored to their children. I have to say the messages which parents ask for parents to hear, which sorry, which children ask for parents to hear, can be deeply moving. That one of the things that can be lost, I think, in the process of separation and divorce is that children are experiencing the separation and divorce, not in the same way as the parents, but they are experiencing the transition. And definitely they have feelings about it and observations, which may be different to what mom and dad are experiencing. And hearing those messages in their voice, in their language, so the parents know it's really their kid, um, can be really emotional for people. So I've kind of described this incredible, powerful, moving process. So if it's so wonderful, why doesn't everyone do it? So I think there are quite a few reasons, um, but let me talk about the ones that I I routinely see. I think the first one is cost, that some families cannot afford to involve another professional in their process. So the child consultant will need to charge for their time meeting the children, writing reports in the mediation. So adding another professional's charges to this process can be prohibitive for some families. I think the second reason is really assessment. So if after assessment, the child consultant or the mediator thinks that it wouldn't be appropriate for child-inclusive mediation, then we can't use it. So this could be because it becomes clear that parents are going to be unwilling or unable to hear messages they don't like, or worse, if the child consultant or the mediator thinks there's a prospect that a child could be punished um, for giving feedback, then we certainly can't permit CIM to happen. No child consultant, no family mediator wants to put children in a worse position. 
The next could be professional overload. So some children whose families are separating are already working with mental health professionals. They may be seeing a counselor, a psychologist, the social welfare department report writer. And if they're overloaded with these interactions, it may not be appropriate for the child to meet with yet another professional person. What we don't want to happen is a situation where a child feels they meet with another mental health professional and nothing changes for them. That actually meeting with mental health professionals doesn't make things better. So that conversation is really important to understand what is happening for a child right now and what would this look like in terms of interventions from a mental health professional. The next reason why it doesn't happen is consent. So this is a process which both parents need to consent to. And I've had occasions where one parent has refused to use child-inclusive mediation. I think sometimes they're concerned about involving children with another professional. Um, I think sometimes it's because they don't want to hear messages. Uh, sometimes they feel like they don't need to hear um, from their child specifically. The other time that consent is relevant is sometimes children don't want to come. Um, I have to say, I think that's typically teenagers. So, you know, they're already overloaded in terms of schedule. Often teenagers can be quite angry with their parents that they're being put through this process, that they're having to deal with the inconvenience and um, the challenges that come from separation. And the thought of having to go and see another professional person or to have more time taken out of their schedule is more than they can bear. So often when there's a lack of consent from children, it's because they're teenagers and they just do not want to be involved. It's really for mum and dad to sort out. For some families, I would say it's also not necessary. Um, so in some families, mum and dad are really child focused and are really aligned around how are the kids doing, what is beneficial for the children, what arrangements should they put in place. And they can do that in a, they can put those arrangements in place in a very child focused way, just working with a mediator. So for some families, this is not a necessary process. It might be a um, an additive process, a value-add process, but it's not something that they need in order to get their arrangements done. So next week, I'll be talking again with Dr. Monica Borschel about a psychologist's perspective on child-inclusive mediation. So how do psychologists work in child-inclusive mediation and what are some of her observations around the CIM process? So I'll speak to you next week, but in the meantime, take care.